Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to the January 2023 edition of Masters of the Universe. I'm Eric Kazatsky, Head of Municipal Strategy at Bloomberg Intelligence, and joined by my co-host Karen Altamirano, also Bloomberg Intelligence. The topic of remote work, hybrid work, or even work from home are ones that have been in the forefront of discussions for many folks since March of 2020. However, there are experts who have been studying this field much longer than the duration of the pandemic. We're pleased to be joined today by one such expert, Nick Bloom. For those of you unfamiliar, Nick, who some refer to as the prophet of remote work, is a professor of economics at Stanford University and has been researching working from home for the past 20 years, winning a Guggenheim Fellowship for this in 2022. He's also consulted with hundreds of CEOs and managers and has been covered extensively on working from home by international media, including competitors of Bloomberg, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, CNN, BBC, Financial Times. Um, welcome, Nick. We're super happy to have you here joining us today. And, you know, we want to sort of just get right into the discussion. I think that the first question I have is, are you working from home today? <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, I am at home. You know, I'm like much of my data, I kind of work hybrid uh, okay you know i'm hybrid during the day though i'm aware that's pretty rare that's because i live on stanford campus and my commute is about five minutes so i'm at home in the morning I actually did the classic thing i drop my kids at school and then i work from home a bit in the morning and then i'll go okay. for lunch work yeah. and then come back <laughs> i mean has your schedule always been like that or is this sort of since pandemic no academics are pretty i mean you don't need me telling you but academics have a pretty weird lifestyle we have yeah. always been hybrid. Pretty much the rest of the world, I'm aware, hasn't, but it's been quite standard. <laughs> uh, it feels like we're the only point of you know stationarity in this uh, post-pandemic world. Yeah, I mean, I don't need to tell you. I mean, coming up in the finance world, I mean, unless I was missing a limb, I was expected to be on the trading desk or, or at my post. So, you know, it's really different. If you have the cough or sniffles, no one wants to see you now. So it's a, a complete different <laughs> mind shift. Um, look, I, I, obviously the word question when we're going through your bio is you've been studying this area for 20 years. You know, how did you get started looking at the area of remote work? What sort of driven your research in the area? And, you know, how have your views changed, you know, given the pandemic and now that it's like obviously a term that everyone's using? So, yes, long, long ago, I worked in McKinsey. And mm -hmm. when I was there, I cared a lot about and focused on management, obviously, and actually, I've been doing research on management practices for about 20 years. And early on, one of the things that was interesting was kind of what I call being nice to people practices. So work from home is part of it, job sharing, maternity leave, paternity leave, et cetera. So I started to collect data on it. I also had a student, uh, James Liang, who was the co-founder and now chairman of Trip.com. It's one of the world's big three travel agents. They're a massive company listed on NASDAQ worth tens of billions. And I ran an experiment with him on his firm. And so I kind of been working on it. I have to say it was a bit of a backwater uh, until March, 2020. I, some stuff happened. I met Obama in 2014 because there was a policy initiative on it and, you know, did sure. something with Marissa Mayer, but you know, March, 2020, it just, everything changed. It's the like your thing, Super Bowl. Yeah. I mean, the odd <laughs> thing for me is I had this research showing work from home could improve productivity. It kept people happier. There were some upsides and downsides. I was yeah. never quite sure how realistic it was because it was a few 
it wasn't quite case studies, but not much more than that. And of course, it turns out, I think it was reasonably accurate in hindsight. I didn't even believe my own numbers, let alone yeah. expect anyone else to before the pandemic. So, I mean, obviously, I'm thinking that's where the profit of remote work title comes in, that you, you sort of were forecasting these trends before they even were trends. Yeah, I, I don't. I wasn't so much in the forecast. So, to, you know, to give you some background, remote work was already growing pretty fast pre-pandemic. So, the number of days in, in the U.S. work from home was doubling every 15 years. The pandemic just basically boosted it by about another 40 years worth of growth. So, there's a trend up, and then a huge yeah. additional jump. The profit thing was, I said, look, it can improve productivity, keep people happy, you know, yeah. etc. Turns out that's roughly true. So, I mean, if you look at the U.S. and Europe. People are yeah. you know, happier working if they can do it partly remotely. And on average, they're actually slightly more productive. I, I mean, I can speak for myself. Um, I've had a pretty productive pandemic when it comes to workflow. But I mean, look, my situation, I write for a living. So I can do that from anywhere. Yeah, you know, right. a lot of people in the finance industry, you know, they, they have different job roles that have different sort of skill set necessities. So it, it doesn't sort of translate to everyone. You know, you brought up Europe. Um, and one question that I did have is, how have work from home you know, I, I guess approaches been different in the U.S. versus our European counterparts. You know, have those trends existed over there previously? So the one common global fact is work from home everywhere has, has increased a lot. Just to give you some numbers, I'll start with the U.S. The U.S., 5% of full paid days will work from home pre-pandemic. That's gone up yeah. to about 30%. So the U.S. has seen a six-fold increase. That increase has been similar, but the levels are lower. So the U.S., Canada, U.K., have about 30% of days. You go into South, you know, Central Southern Europe, you're looking more at 20%. Asia, Australia, you know, 15, 10%. But all of them have seen an enormous increase. It's just the levels, the starting levels are lower and the ending levels are lower, say, in Asia or Southern Europe. Yeah. I mean, Karen and I were talking in preparation for the podcast, you know, just sort of what our experience has been at Bloomberg, right? So you obviously went from a period where there was no one in the office, so some people came in the office and now it's, it's sort of melded into this three day a week goal, um, you know, hybrid as you, you might want to call it. And so I think like Karen had one question that I wasn't able to answer. We were talking, Karen, what were you thinking when we were like sort of planning this out? What are companies thinking about in terms of hybrid? Is that going to stick around? Thank you for asking it. Yes, definitely. So the last six months, it is totally flatlined in the US in terms of share of days. So it was 5% pre-pandemic. It's jumped up to 60%. It was an enormous surge in like, you know, April, May, yeah. June, 2020. It's slowly dropped down since, you know, I would say, you've seen the data, we have monthly data since June, July, 2022, it's flatlined. It is clearly here to stay. In fact, if you to predict that, if you're thinking of real estate or predicting the future, Certainly looking three, certainly five years out, it will be higher than it is now. And the reason is technology drives everything. So because work from home levels have gone up five, six fold, every hardware, software company, startup is dramatically improving and increasing mm -hmm. its rate of new products to support work from home. They will come on stream. So, you know, right now we think Zoom, Teams, Dropbox, etc. is fantastic. That didn't exist when I first started working on this. It's made work from home a lot better. The new yep. technologies we're going to see five, 10 years will be, again, a leap forward. So this is actually in some ways the low point compared to what we're going to see. 
if you, it's interesting you say that because if you look at sort of the high flying performing stocks that were focused on work from home, like Zoom, for instance, right? It shot up to record highs during the beginning of the pandemic and then sort of came back down to earth. And, you know, look, I'm, I'm a layman when it comes to this area. And I thought to myself, huh, I guess it's really not going to last forever, you know, sort of seeing that trend. But it's interesting that you say that there's a lot of new technology and money being focused on developing even better tools to facilitate hybrid work. I mean, is there anything of interest or note? that you know we should be keeping our eye out for well that's part of the issue to be honest with a lot of firms so you know zoom is great i visit i met eric uran and spent a while talking to them part of the challenge with these companies is there is so much new technology coming on board so yeah. in some sense they have a great product but look if it gets replaced by something the kind of things that are out there augmented reality virtual reality holograms way better screens multiple cameras it feels kind of incremental month by month but again if you think back uh, to 2010, so we go back 13 years, there was no cloud and file sharing and there was no video calls like this. So work from home was over the phone, emailing files, sending it by the mail. It's like horrible. Uh, yeah. and now that rate of change has probably gone up two to three X. So imagine that change is going to be seen again yeah. if we go to you know 2030. Yeah, it's almost comical to think about being on a conference call at this point, right? <laughs> like talk about antiquated. Um, Karen, you know, like, Again, we were talking yesterday. Um, you know, companies have different views on how this is really going to play out over the next five to ten years. Karen, what were you thinking about asking now? Um, so, yeah, what is what have you been seeing in your data? Do you have any data or any research that you've done in terms of whether um, there's been in, this increase in remote work has increased costs for employers? Yeah. So there's three modes to be really clear on things. So this is a great question. There's 55% of Americans are fully in person. They cannot work remotely. So you can imagine if this is retail, you know, a lot of manufacturing, hospitals, etc. Of the other 45%, they break in two ways. 15% are fully remote. They tend to actually be lower paid. These are folks that are like payroll processing, IT support, benefits, etc. The final 30% is probably pretty much everyone listening. You know, all of us is professionals and managers, and they are hybrid. Hybrid looks like it's clearly it's and it's become basically universal. I have talked to maybe a thousand by now organizations, companies, but things like my local city council, the hospital, the UN World Food Program, you know, like every the Fed, the ECB, all of them have gone to hybrid. I mean, without fault, I can't think of, I, I literally cannot think of an organization I've spoken to that isn't doing hybrid in some form. There are different flavors. Four, one, three, two, two, three, choice, not choice, but pretty much they're all saying we let people at least work from home on Friday and often maybe one or two other days a week. I mean, do you think it's confusing seeing a lot of the big headlines surrounding this? Like, you know, Bob Iger coming back to Disney and saying he wants everybody back in the office all the time. You know, does that confuse people when they see big names, big companies saying, you know, we're not sort of embracing that hybrid approach? Yes, you know, I think a lot of it's the media narrative. So I, talk, I, I survey uh, several thousand companies a month and about mm -hmm. 10,000 people a month. What you see wow. in the big picture data is a lot of movement in both directions. So you're right, there are companies hauling people back. I also sure. talk to companies that say space is expensive. We decide to get rid of our office. We're going to more remote. On average, there's movement in both directions. If you remember back to like May 2020, the big media headlines, because people were interested in it, was folks like Facebook saying we're going remote. Now the media is much more interested in picking up on the firms going in the opposite direction. But if you 
move away from the anecdotes and you look at the large-scale data, it's flat. And you see this, it's not just our data, and the census yeah. data and the castle security data and Google data, all of them show work from home is stabilized and you know it has been for six months now. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought up the expense side of things. For employers, it's generally positive. So if I go, there, are, there are four benefits of hybrid that you normally hear. One is it keeps employees happy. So it's viewed about the same as an 8% pay increase. So people say that they'd, they're basically about net neutral on working from home two, three days a week or being paid 8% more. And for employers, that's a huge deal because it reduces you know, wage bills, retention, recruitment costs. Second benefit is productivity. Turns out if you let people work from home two days a week and you're organized about it, so everyone works from home on the same days, let's say, I don't know, Monday, Friday, people work a bit more because they use a bit of their commute time to work and they're more productive because it's slightly quieter. Third benefit is diversity, helps support DI. Finally, it saves on a bit of space. So it turns out well-organized hybrid doesn't seem to have any major downsides. Fully remote, whereby people are permanently at the office is problematic, but well-organized hybrid as you know, because of that, I think it's saving firms a lot of money. I mean, it's not just a small amount; it's saving them a lot, mostly, particularly on wage bill, recruitment, and retention, but also a bit on space, a bit on productivity. So, I want to come back to the point you just made, but I want to sort of get to that diversity point before I forget it and we get away from it. You know, how has hybrid work melded to improve DEI hiring? Like, how do those two sort of coincide um, to benefit the employer and employees ultimately? Sure. So if you look in survey data, and this is from us, Slack, various people, and you ask people, how comfortable do you feel coming into the office full time? And you also ask them, are you a minority, which you define as less than 10% of your coworkers are in okay. the same share by gender, by age bin, by race, by religion, and, po- and by politics? What you see is minorities feel slightly less comfortable coming in. So imagine, you know, I'm 50. If I'm full of, in an office full of 20-year-olds, it's slightly, I mean, it's not terrible, but it's slightly less comfortable than if I'm in an office full of folks my own age. As a result, these people are keener on working from home, typically two, three days a week. It's not they want to go fully remote. And yeah. that means if you're really tough and, and you say everyone's going to come back five days a week, the people most likely to quit are minorities in your office place. You know, the only Republican in a Democrat workplace, the only woman in a workplace full of men, for example. So it's costly for DIA. I mean, does any of that sort of tie into the trends we're seeing in public transit um, data that has been obviously like, you know, very much of a laggard in terms of recovery um, during the last year and a half? So public transit in the US, we have great data on public transit. So there are about 8 million journeys a month in US public transit. That's down to about 5 million now. And we have monthly data and it's been at 5 million for a few months. So what is that encompassing? Like, so that 8 million trips, like what is that covering? Is that buses and regional trains? That's everything. About a third is New York. About another third is all other big cities around the US. And the remaining third is like smaller cities, towns, et cetera. Okay. And it's heavily skewed towards, um, you know, over half is like train, subway, but buses is a big chunk. What you see is particularly amongst trains uh, and subway, there's been a big permanent drop. Buses less so because the types of people that take buses tend more to be face-to-face workers. The mm-hmm. types of people that take trains in the subway are more office workers. But on average, in total, that's down 35%. And it's been that way, you know, stabilized. So public transit, like the office use, 
like work from home, they all show the same story of people are basically office workers are typically working from home two, three days a week. What do you think are the main drivers in terms of the lack of, of you know, recovery in public transit? Like you, you mentioned New York, obviously, like in my world, the New York MTA is, is a huge municipal bond issuer, one of the largest held credits uh, in a lot of portfolios. And, you know, one of the biggest credit knocks has been the turnstile data, which has just been abysmally weak. Um, what do you think the reasons are still driving that? you know, almost two and a half years later. And do you see anything in your profit hat that's saying that it's going to get back to pre-2019 levels? No. So first off, this is the new normal. So okay. all the data I show, we are at the new normal. So you're forecasting out, I don't see revenues. If you have Jan 2023 or December 2022 numbers, for example, I mean, that is where we're going to stay once you've de-seasonalized it. Um, why is it lower? I think the primary reason is work from home. The typical office worker in the U.S. is now only coming in two and a half days a week. And they're, you know, the main drivers of particularly subway um, and train trips. A lot of people that work for them. Look, if you're in a, you know, Starbucks in center of New York and there's no office workers, of course, you are coming in less, too, because there's less you know, business in the, in the store. Sure. Um, I, there are other discussions where I have less good data on, honestly, things about crime and service quality. The concern, I've had this concern and I've written it up that you can get into a vicious cycle that if revenues drops by a third, of course, you cut services. Uh, you know, there's less people. That makes it less appealing because it feels, you know, more sketchy, more crime, less trains. It goes mm-hmm. down, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know where things shake out, but certainly I don't see any particular, you know, much more growth. And if you go five, 10 years out of anything, I would have predicted the reverse, actually, based on the view that work from home levels are going to grow. I would imagine that's going to have to be a credit issue for a lot of these municipal issuers, right? Because they sold bonds with revenue projections that had a deep history of traffic that had been pretty stable. Then boom, you have the pandemic and you're saying this is the new normal. So all those previous revenue assumptions just out the window. So they're going to have to figure out, you know, like you said, either service cuts, budget cuts, or more subsidies from state federal government, right? Yes. I mean, to make this a bit worse... If it can, yeah. if it can get any worse, they have an even, you know, an additional problem, which is peak loading. So what you see is that Friday is by far the most popular day to work from home. Monday, second, Thursday follows third. People mostly in in the U.S. want to come in on Tuesday, Wednesday. Interestingly, in Europe, they want to work from home on Wednesday because of schooling systems. But in the U.S., so because of that, it makes life harder in terms of cost and capacity because you have very high usage Tuesday. You have a kind of a three period rather than a two period model. It used to be Monday to Friday and then the weekend. Now we're having Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, very busy, Monday, Friday, quarter. The weekend is close to where it was pre-pandemic, actually. Oddly enough, weekend traffic is not nearly as down as much. So that, of course, that more extreme peak loading also creates challenges for public transit organizers. And budget cuts are really tricky with a lot of these entities because many of the employees are, are unionized. Um, there's collective bargaining agreements in place, you know, that that were done before the pandemic. So it's not as easy as just Microsoft lobbying off 5% of the workforce, right? There's a lot more sort of nuance and, and sort of issues that crop up when you want to talk about, you know, cutting costs. Yes. And also, I mean, just, you know, there's labor costs, which are relatively hard to adjust because of unions. Capital costs are also hard to adjust because there's big fixed costs of service. So, you know, however many trains you run down that track, you basically got to have the track. Of course, you need slightly less maintenance, you have less traffic on it. But 
this has long been a problem with, with mass transit. In fact, the British have a long history of this with the train network that went through multiple rounds of cuts from World War II onwards and how to do it and how, you know, not to turn into a vicious cycle. So I genuinely think, you know, public transit is one issue. The other issue is, you know, city finances, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But yes, public transit is facing probably a, a permanent, depending on what you do, but, you know, anywhere between 10 to 50% reduction, depending how much is bus versus how much mm-hmm. is subway. And, you know, very elite commuter rail from expensive suburbs into the center of big cities could see 50% drops because that's basically high-end professionals and those folks are coming into the office on average 50% compared to 100% pretty much pre-pandemic. Sure. Speaking of um, labor costs, as you know, what we saw in 2021 was employees voluntarily resigning in mass, what they were referring to as the great resignation in part due to wage stagnations and inflexible remote work policies. How has the rise in remote work restrained uh, wage growth? So the great resignation, so really interesting, I think the great resignation is partly driven by the variation in remote work. So mm-hmm. one thing was, go back to 2019, it wasn't an option. Like, you know, you, you couldn't really work fully remote or hybrid or fully in person. Suddenly you take a, an existing stock of people that have chosen all the different companies they're in for various reasons. And you throw another variable in there, which is remote work policies. And you're, a, you know, company X or Goldman's, let's say, and you want to be remote. You realize it's not an option. You quit and mm-hmm. go join Airbnb. So part of the great resignation is just driven by the fact there's huge variation in what's being offered. There's also enormous variation in what people want. We've surveyed people and, you know, 30% of people want to be fully remote, but 20% want to be fully in person and 50% want hybrid. So that great resignation is calming down. Karen, on your wage question, this is a really important point. People value hybrid at about the same as an 8% pay increase. So we've surveyed tens of thousands of people, both in the US and about another 50,000 globally. Very similar numbers. What that means is if you're a graduate, like you know me, you probably, honestly, anyone listening, a professional that has the ability to work hybrid, you're keener to do that. Your labor supply has basically gone up. That's one of the big reasons why over the course of the pandemic, real wages for all of us grads has actually fallen. So, you know, our wages have gone up by what, three, four, five percent, but inflation's gone up more than that and we're down in real terms. If you look at non-grads, folks that don't get to work from home, They've had the reverse experience. They've had to go in, face infection risk, wear masks. Their real wages are up. So it's certainly affected labor supply, kept down wage bills, but only for the types of people that work from home, which is basically university graduates. So as you talk to all these business leaders, you know, how are they sort of planning for making the most out of the hybrid work for home schedules? You know, what are they doing to sort of say, all right, this is sort of the next derivative of thinking into what the workplace is going to look like? <laughs> the, uh, I mean, the, the, uh, there's a history on this. So if you go to 2020, people are like, it's not happening. It's going back. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. no, 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 this isn't going back. This is permanent. By 2021, okay, we're hybrid. Uh, but mostly it was what's called you know, flexible hybrid, uh, which is you can choose the days you come in, but there's massive complaints about you know, I come in, Karen's at home, Karen comes in, you're at home, and you're on Zoom all day in the office, and people are just upset and angry. So 22 and 23 is much more about what I would call organized or anchor day hybrid. So now we've settled down into either team by team or just at the whole company, saying like, what Starbucks just announced? Starbucks said, look, Tuesday, Wednesday, everyone comes in, 
and then you pick one other day you come in. And the idea is then when we're in the office on Tuesday, Wednesday, we're all in. So we organize you know, meetings and trainings and lunch events and discussions. We make the most of it. It's very, very social time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Collaborative. The offices are being redesigned a lot. I talk to office designers and property companies. There's much more meeting rooms going in collaborative spaces, a lot of cubes being taken out. That's really where things are settling down. Typically, whether you let it decide by team by team or at the company level, mostly people are saying come in Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe Thursday, let you work from home Monday, Friday. So if I was to say there's one plain vanilla plan, it honestly is home Monday, Friday, in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Monday, Friday, quieter reading, writing, maybe working with other offices. You're going to have to, you know, connect by Zoom or Teams anyway. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, lots of in-person things. And that's kind of where things are settling up. Has, has this whole revolution changed the way that that sales jobs are performed? Um, you know, because I think the challenge we have even here is, uh, you know, if I want to go out and see a client, they may not be in the office three days a week. So that doesn't tee up. So, you know, even though we're back, it's been a challenge sort of touching customers and trying to, to coordinate with them on that level. Yes, definitely. So one thing is business travel long run looks like it's going to be down 20, 30 percent. Right now, it's up because there's a you know pent up demand from two years of no travel. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, there people are back out on the road. Yes, they are. You know, this is based on surveying firms. Again, all, everything I'm going to give you is based on we've surveyed. We've done two waves okay. with the Atlanta Fed in Chicago. And we asked people, and they're giving us 20, 30 percent cuts. And the reason is they're saying, look, you're going to see someone in person. You travel out on the road Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. They're there in the office. They're in the office. You're in the office. Monday, Friday business trips is for folks that just want to do it on Zoom. And if you're going to only have a half an hour conversation, it may be more efficient to do that than flying, you know, taking a day or two of traveling, particularly the customer doesn't want it. So we definitely see a change in that. And I think it's symmetric that on both sides, it's not just actually, you know, the sales agent, the outbounds don't want to travel. It's often the customers don't want it because they're not in the office. They're at home. They want to talk to you on Friday and they just say, let's do it on, you know, let's do it on a video call. Absolutely. How do you think corporate travel budgets are going to be impacted or how have they been impacted for good? And how does that impact airlines and restaurants? Yeah, I think, look, again, there's a stock and flow. So, you know, 22 was particularly, you know, my gosh, we can finally travel again. I've been meaning to speak to X a while ago abroad. Longer run, particularly as work from home technology gets better, you know, video calls get higher quality, screens bigger, etc., more at the margin travel is just going to not happen. I mean, if you're only going to have a one-hour meeting with somebody and it takes, you know, particularly if it's international, you may think, I just don't need to do that. I can do it. I'm saying, look, I'm aware that Zoom is only 80% or 70% of teams as good, but it's good enough to avoid spending two days traveling. So business travel in particular is going to drop. Not This isn't Armageddon, but it would be yeah. down probably 20%. Leisure travel, as we know, I think is even up, actually. So there's Definitely. a big skew. Another interesting fact, by the way, is if you look at from the BLS, if you look at online share of online spending, in fact, I put this out on Twitter and LinkedIn recently, mm-hmm. that is back to its pre-pandemic trend. So it surged during the pandemic and has fallen back. So some activities like leisure travel, you know, going to sports matches, online shopping, in-person shopping are kind of back to trends. Work from home is the big outlier. That is surged and is nowhere near where it was pre-pandemic. That is a permanent shift. I want to I want to bring the conversation back to sort of my world, the municipal space, and we talked about how you know there's this like big drop in public transit, 
you, know, you have workers who just aren't in the cities with the frequency they were before. I don't want to say they're ghost towns because they're just not. Um, and then you, you sort of compound that with the waves of layoffs that we're seeing, which could sort of impact those numbers even more. So the question in my mind is, when do you see that trickle down impact into local economies? And then I have a follow up question after you sort of address that one. So it is a genuine real issue. So in particular, if you take San Jose, San Francisco, I mean, I live between the two of them, but these are the mm-hmm. cities. They've been hit by, you know, two punches. It's like a double punch. One is work yep. from home. The other is tech. Work from home, if I start with that, that has definitely had what's called a donut effect. So I have a lot of research on that showing people and activities, including retail, have moved from city centers out to the suburbs. It's kind of, it's like obvious why. If I think, look, I'm only going to come in two, three days a week, I want a bit of space at home for an office, I'm going to move out. That meant, it's not like the activity's gone away. The problem is the way American cities are structured, they're pretty small. So, you know, London Breed in San Francisco is a very small radius. And if you move out to, you know, East Bay or Marion or to Central Valley, you no longer, your, your activity no longer falls under her tax jurisdiction. So the centers of big American cities have definitely seen a fall in activity and a loss of tax revenue out to the suburbs surrounding different cities. So that is a long-run permanent issue, and they're probably going to need to reduce spending to bring things into balance. The other issue is tech, and that is more localized to the West Coast in particular. Uh, but that you know, is partly cyclical, but I think you know, 2022 is going to be seen as a long-run aberration. Tech is clearly doing well. It's on a long-run trend, but sure. there's also a lot of cutbacks. So, yes, there is real genuine pressure on... Um, you know, fiscal positions of cities, particularly big cities. You know, New York is in, is in there, but San Francisco, San Jose, uh, Seattle are probably the most under pressure. You know, what's what, what's sort of on my radar to watch, and I'm, I'm not sort of, you know, banging any like drums here that there's going to be defaults, but you do have some cities that are, you know, heavily dependent on commuter wage taxes. Philadelphia, my hometown for one, over 35% of their general fund budget comes from those taxes from people who commute into the city. That's obviously taken a big hit. Columbus, Ohio, AAA rated city, but a huge dependence on commuter wage taxes, right? How do you think those cities rethink how their taxing sort of schemes should be set up. Are you hearing anything or do you have any thoughts on that issue? I mean, one structural, I'm less of an expert on tax, but I'll tell you one structural thing on city use, which is retail has shifted down. So there's less office workers, there's less demand for, you know, for mm-hmm. Starbucks, you know, Panera Bread, etc. city centers. As you know, there's less demand for office space, less trophy class A, but more lower quality. One Objective would be convert that into, re- into residential. So if the cities that would do well is those that convert it into residential and get people staying in city centers, if you can do that, then you have to change your tax base. You're not going to get as many commuters in. You're going to have to just focus more on people living in city centers. The other thing is I think there needs to be some right-sizing. There is, I mean, revenues are down. There's just going to be less activity in city centers. If you, put, if you step back a minute, look at the history of this. 1980 was really the low point of the center of U.S. cities. They, you know, they're, they're relatively cheap, very high crime rates, not a lot of people wanting to live in city centers. From 1980 to 2019, they did better and better. They relatively boomed versus the suburbs. We've now unwound maybe 10, 10, 15 years of that, and I think a lot of that's permanent. Now, it's a debate whether it's good or bad. Clearly, if you're a bond trader, a municipal bond trader, it's pretty important yeah. for you and you're holding city center bonds. If you step at a larger picture of an economist or a politician, it's debatable, but it is a real thing, and I think it's permanent. I think one of the biggest challenges for cities as well is is sort of finding out 
how to repurpose a lot of this commercial space, you know, because, it, you know, at the end of the day, like you're not going to have another coffee shop come in and take a no, over an old Starbucks spot. And a lot of these storefronts have remained empty for the better part of two years. Right. So I think that, you know, there's a lot of at least think as certain how they're going to like repurpose some of these properties. And the unfortunate part in my mind is that they've sort of at the end of all the COVID stimulus cash that they had sort of worked through. So they don't have this huge buffer of sort of magical money that they can sort of throw at some of these problems anymore too. Yes. the I mean, there is repurposing going on. The way it is going to have to work is you take a Starbucks and mm-hmm. now there's just not enough traffic. Traffic has dropped by 50%. So the value of that property as a retail property drops by, I don't know, 50, 60. It depends what the effect on rent is because profits are down sure. more than. So at some point, the property becomes worth sufficiently low amount that it gets purchased by someone that spends money converting it into residential. But yeah, there's a big hit. If you own that property as a retail property holder, you've lost a lot of cash. The same on some of these lower quality offices. So as far as cities are concerned, what they're trying to encourage is enough write down on basis for uh, offices and for retail that then it gets converted into residential. But yeah, there's money lost in that. And that's the owners of this property that, you know, if you own city center, certainly lower quality office property or retail in the city center at the beginning of the pandemic, you're clearly lost money now because that stuff sure. is less valuable. How much less is less clear? San Jose, San Francisco, a lot less. I, I wouldn't be surprised that stuff is worth half what it was pre-pandemic, but I don't have good numbers on that. But, you know, this is, it's a big, a big hit. You know, I know on the East Coast, what we've seen is some repurposing of actual city streets. Uh, during the pandemic, right? Closed off uh, to some traffic, increased pedestrian lanes, bike lanes. Are you seeing similar trends in San Francisco as well? Yeah. So though, to be clear, repurposing is really hard. So for example, in New York, there's a regulation that you've got to have a window in the bathroom. So imagine large offices with huge floor plans. How are you going to do it? Sinking shafts to the center of these buildings is astronomically expensive. There's also, you know, offices have far less bathrooms that I have, you know, set up for kitchens. So it turns out repurposing is extremely expensive. So small, old-fashioned, what we call European-style offices, which are little floor prints in old houses. Think yeah. about if anyone's been to Yale University, a lot of that. Yeah. That stuff is relatively easy. Some of that even used to be housing and went to offices and went back. What's really difficult is these 1980s-plus glass skyscrapers because they don't convert well. Um so that's why these kind of buildings are much more of a challenge. And for thinking about cities, it's worth looking at the age and the structure of the commercial property. Okay. Retail property, you know, kind of is often on the ground floor of these things. And so it kind of has the same floor print. Obviously, employees are in favor of this work from home um, setup that we've been living with for the past uh, couple of years now. But I also want to take a look at this from the employer's perspective. And converse, I've had a few conversations with people who are tasked with, you know, leading those efforts of getting people back into the office. What strategies have you seen companies implement that have had a meaningful impact on people's desire to return to the office, if any? So the big thing that works is making it in employees' interest to come in. And if you survey employees, the two reasons they want to come to the office is to work collaboratively with their colleagues and to socialize with their colleagues. We offer them a lot of options, including spending time with their manager. And amazingly, that's way down on the list, using the equipment, the free bagels, the ping pong table, way down. 
So it's really about basically working with and socializing with colleagues. And what that tells you is to make the return to the office work, you've got to do two things. One is have what I call anchor days. So team by team, you just have to fix days so you're coordinated. There's really no point in that, you know, the three of us work together. We go on on different days. We're just going to be annoyed. The other thing is managers need to make sure that when you're in, the activities make sense. So you want to get people in and then when they're in, have trainings, meetings, collaborative sessions. There's no point getting them, you know, doing Excel or desk work. So collectively, companies that I've spoken to that have made it successful, they've often started, to be honest, with one or two days a week. They said, look, we want to go to three, but it's a lot easier to have one or two that's successful. Find that those are the best days of the week because we're in all day and we feel like really energized and we're just going to add a third on the back of that. So I know we're running up on time and, and, you know, we usually end our podcast with a similar type question, but um, I'm trying to think like how best to phrase it for you. You know, you've been sort of pretty positive on this whole sort of revolution, but, you know, are there any sort of issues that sort of linger in your mind or or keep you up at night when it comes to this different change in, in work environments and the relationships between employees and employers, especially if the economy, you know, sort of heads full blown into a recession? I think this podcast is perfect to talk about the ups and downsides of work from home because yeah, I've been saying this for two years. Mostly, it's all good. Firms generally benefit from you know from hybrid. Uh, employees generally benefit from hybrid. The economy generally benefits. A lot of positives. Definitely. I would say the big negative really is pressure on a governments of you know the municipal kind of budgets of city centres and b mass transit. Those two are the big losers. It's not that yeah. society's down and. Somehow we have to figure out to avoid a lot of municipal defaults for public transit systems going under. And I don't know whether that's, you know, it has to be a combination of being, you know, sensible about right-sizing these things, maybe yeah. some more transfers, more subsidies from the federal government. But that is the challenge. That is, you know, folks like London Breed and Eric Adams, you can imagine, are some of the most vocally against work from home. And I agree with where, you know, I can totally understand why they're saying that because there's some sure. of the their cities are some of the biggest losers from it because of the fiscal situation. The whole of New York, if you take the 50 million people living in that vast conurbation, they're up. But if you look at, you know, the fiscal position of just, you know, central Manhattan, that's obviously in trouble. Yeah. And, and sort of parting thoughts for our listeners. What do you think that sort of the, the, the people who aren't studying this for the past 20 years should be thinking about over the next 24 months? And the main thing, this is permanent. Coming back to Karen's question at the beginning, this is a permanent change. We are now in the new normal. This is it. There is no, you know, anyone hoping for better or worse that it's going to revert. It's clearly not that. I look at the monthly data. It's in multiple different time series, many countries. You can see we're at a new normal. In fact, looking ahead, work from home is going to pick up three, certainly five years out. It's going to be higher than it is now. So it's not just the new normal. We've not just shifted up the level. We've also shifted up the growth rate because we've accelerated technological change that supports remote work. Sure. This has been such a great conversation. Nick Bloom, Stanford University, thank you for joining us today. Um, we really sort of so happy that you could be here. Um, so until next time, uh, thank you for joining us on Masters of the Universe. Um, our next month's guest is going to be Adam Stern, uh, co-head of municipal research at Breckenridge Capital Advisors. So please tune in to that as well. Thanks so much.